the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. It was more scary than anything. It was it was like, well, they happened within two years of each other. How is it that that, you know, within a ten mile radius these two murders happened? Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And this is our part two of our not really two-parter, but kind of two-parter with the same first degree, but the cases are different episode. Yes. And I don't want to hear it, Facebook group. They always are saying, let us know when it's a two-parter. This isn't. You get the conclusion to the story at the end of the episode we're tying it together with an arc of human processing and, you know, the philosophical aspects of digesting two crimes like this at a young age. So yes. we don't want to hear it preemptively. I'm letting you guys know. I don't want to be tagged in 500 things this <laughs> Thursday. Please, Lord. Listen, we've done a good job that if there are multi-parters, we do tell the audience in the beginning because I do understand that it is – quite annoying if you are the type of person that like everything in a little bow by the time oh, you're yeah. listening. Yeah, everything in a little bow because that's how life is. <laughs> Welcome to my hell of being a, a journalist that only does unsolved murders for 20 years and has stories with no endings. Sorry, this is what, you know what? Basically what we're doing is we're showing you what my life is like. So, <laughs> oh my God. You know what I want to know at the end of? The Long Island serial killer case. Yeah. Tell me yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell us that one. Oh my God. Uh, I have so many. Um, this took a very uh, sideways turn. I wasn't meant for it to go that way. But um, before we jump into this case, well, I'm going to make another reminder that we have an episode of Killing Time coming out tomorrow. It's our non-serious version of this podcast where we just talk shit for an hour. It's y- a yes. separate show. It comes out on Thursdays. Go check it out. It's in this feed. Do you yes. know what it is? It's the first podcast that is true crime adjacent. Yes. Yes. Everything has a true crime theme, but we're not talking about true crime unless we are. It's like Beverly Hills adjacent. Yes. Yes. Highly informative. It sort of will satiate your true crime history bone, your true crime parody bone, your true crime um, mock courtroom bone. Mm. There's all sorts of things Mm -hmm. to indulge Mm -hmm. in several delights for your true crime senses. It's really fun. We had a blast doing it. Um, But before we get into the episode, I'm going to ask Billy what day it is today, but I do want to warn everybody, it's a very bleak ass day with a lot. It's like everybody wanted to throw them any medical day that they could into today. So we're going to try to find the silver lining of today. Yes. And the silver lining is going to get dark because it's May 19th. It's National Devil's Food Cake Day. I don't Ooh, even know if I know what a devil's food cake is. It's is it chocolate? Extra decadent chocolate cake. Yes. Ooh. Devil's food. You would be so into it, Jack. It's dense. It's not like a flourless cake, but it's no. pretty close. Yes. A little bit of flour. Before there was the flourless cake thing that went on, this was the closest to like a dense cake. Okay. And on Long Island and in the East Coast, we have this company called Entenmann's. They would yeah, have a fudge ice devil's food cake. Which is mm. which is what that is, and I swear, give me a half gallon of milk and that when I was fifteen years old, 
and it would be gone in a night. Wow, that it sounds was amazing. That yeah. sounds delectable. Mm-hmm. Go get a devil's food cake. All right. Uh, there's no other days, was there? No, there's no other days. That's, That's it. it. Okay. In that case, let's turn on the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you. Last week, with the help of our first degree Jess, we told you the story of 17-year-old Tanya Rogers, who was killed during her junior year of high school on March 27, 1990. Tanya was assaulted, abducted, and killed after using a rural payphone to call her boyfriend. The sexually motivated knife attack was perpetrated by Randy Scott Perry, a 25-year-old soldier on leave. He was quickly arrested and convicted for the crimes committed against Tanya. Tanya's murder rattled the small town of Ninica and shattered Jess's youthful naivety. The murder of Jess's schoolmate provided the first glimpse into the horrors of the world. And while Tanya's murder was the first one close enough for Jess to watch the aftermath unfold, it unfortunately wouldn't be the last. So today's case takes us back to August 26th of 1992. And for starters, this date marked approximately two years and four months since Tanya Rogers had been murdered. Movies Unforgiven, A League of Their Own, and Sister Act were in the theaters, and the number one song was End of the Road by Boys to Men, but also at the top of the charts was November Rain by Guns N' Roses and Achy Breaky Heart by Billy Ray Cyrus. And ironically, the name Billy Ray is going to come into play later in our story. And the setting for today's case is Cement, Oklahoma. Now, Cement is nestled right next to Ninica, which was the setting of last week's case. And as you might guess... The cement industry gave the town its name during the early 1900s. By the 1920s, mining and oil industries attracted workers and their families. But today, it's one of the many small towns in Oklahoma. Right. And Ninica High School and Cement High School were near each other. And at one point, our first degree Jess had transferred to Cement High after her family moved. I transferred from Ninica to Cement. They're literally 10 minutes apart from each other. It was a big culture shock. If you've ever been the new kid at school, you know that it absolutely sucks. High school is the worst time to be ripped away from your friends and forced to start from scratch. But that's exactly what Jess was forced to do. At Ninicaw, I knew everybody. And then everybody got along really well. And nobody cared uh, what, what you dressed like. And nobody cared about your hair and things like that. And I get to cement. And it was like <laughs> walking into a new country. There were only 500 kids total at Jess's new school, so there were already well-established cliques, which can be a very intimidating situation for a young teen. There were 17 kids in my class, and the girls there weren't very nice to me at first because, you know, they all, like, wore makeup, and they all got their hair done, and they all wore, like, designer clothes, and here I was wearing generic kids and Walmart clothes, and so they weren't very nice. And it really sucked there for a few days. But soon, things would start to look up at school. And then Billy Joe and her friend were in my class. And they were the first girls who were nice to me. Billy Joe was probably the first girl who was nice to me. And they made me feel a lot better because I did not want to come to school there for a couple of days. It was just so awkward. I didn't know anybody. And they, they, were, they were nice to me and they made me feel 
a lot more welcome. They introduce themselves and they uh, they kind of walk in the hallway with me and ask me where I transferred from. They just they made me feel a lot better. Jess very much got used to Cement High School and had made several friends since that first day when Billy Joe extended a hand of kindness to her. The school weeks flew by as Jess and Billy Joe remained in each other's orbits into sophomore year. However, for reasons that will be made clear later in the episode, somewhere along the way, Billy Joe had fallen behind in her schoolwork. She had actually gotten held back the year before. So at that point, she was actually in my sister's class because my sister was a grade below me. But she was still going to school there. Being in different grades, Jess and Billy Joe didn't interact as much. But this didn't soften the blow the day she heard something that sounded unbelievable about her classmate. Before the internet and social media, news would travel fast through word of mouth and hushed whispers. And a lot of times the story would get messed up along the way. But the story that was circulating through the school was not a rumor. It was not false. It was true. Billy Joe Powell, a 16-year-old high school sophomore, had shot and killed her father. Imagine being a student at the school during that time. How can a girl, someone sweet enough to go out of their way to make the new girl feel welcome, suddenly be behind bars, accused of such a serious crime? We didn't know any kids who had shot their parents, (laughs) you know? We were all kind of confused as to what might have happened. The press and the curious eyes of residents in the small town of Cement couldn't look away from the Powell family. Everyone wanted to know what had happened, how it had happened, and most importantly, why it had happened. What motive could Pilly Joe possibly have in shooting her father? At first, answers were scant. And with speculation often comes a rumor mill that was swift and brutal, as a magnifying glass loomed over the Powell family. According to the Sunday Oklahoman, the Powell family lived in a dilapidated one-story home. Billy Joe was the youngest child of three siblings. She had an older brother named John, who was in his late 20s, and a sister, Tracy, who was 21. Billy Joe's 43-year-old mother was named Charlotte, and her father's name was Billy Ray Powell. And Billy Ray was a retired Army sergeant, and he was employed as a handyman for the town's mayor. And if you're noticing a resemblance between Billy Joe and her father's name, that's because Billy Joe was named after him. The initial reporting on the story was jarring, and it evokes thoughts of horrifying high-profile stories of killer kids murdering their parents in cold blood. But the truth about what transpired under the Powell home, which ultimately led to the death of Billy Ray Powell, was not as it initially seemed. So, as always, in order to understand how and why this happened, we've got to go back to the beginning. Trouble within the Powell household was not a new occurrence. In fact, there was documentation of disturbing activity unfolding under the Powell roof dating back to 1989. But it's likely that trouble within this family began much earlier than that. As it turns out, in January of 1989, the Oklahoma Department of Human Services had actually removed a then 13-year-old Billy Joe from her home after she ran to her neighbor's house begging for help. Billy Joe, in hysterics, told the neighbor that her father had, quote, been trying to touch her inside her clothes. She fled the home to escape her father's advances. Billy Joe's father, Billy Ray, was sexually abusing Billy Joe. And there's no way to know how early this may have started. But what we do know 
is that Billy Joe had actually told her mother Charlotte about the abuse inflicted on her by her father. Charlotte Powell later admitted in an interview with the Daily Oklahoman that at first she didn't believe her daughter. But Charlotte herself wasn't present in the home for large gaps of time. She was hospitalized frequently for back ailments and was often on a lot of pain medication. Charlotte was also unhappy in her marriage to Billy Ray and later said that she tried to divorce her husband, but every time she would back down under threats. So no doubt that what we're hearing about was nothing short of an incredibly toxic, disturbing, and dangerous environment for the three children being raised in this house. But when Billy fled the home and confided in the neighbors as to what was happening, the cat was just out of the bag. Billy Joe was removed from the home and placed in emergency custody and spent the next 18 months in foster care. So clearly, at this point, the state believed that this abuse was going on. But as far as we can tell, no charges were ever filed against Billy Ray Powell for molesting his children. When Billy Joe was put into foster care, it was reported that emotionally she was in bad shape. Social workers noted that she was suicidal and despondent. But by 1990, she appeared to be doing a lot better to a degree. Billy Joe had been removed from the home in 1989. But for whatever reason, in 1991, a judge returned Billy Joe to her parents' custody. She was returned even though the court social workers and psychologists objected to it. And they weren't the only ones to object. Billy Joe's sister Tracy actually made a written statement detailing her own abuse inflicted by her father and provided proof in the form of a picture where she was not wearing clothes and neither was Billy Joe and neither was her father in bed in the same photo. But that wasn't enough. Billy was forced to return home. And unfortunately, these decisions would have dire consequences for all involved. And that's because clearly an abuser like Billy Ray Powell does not possess the ability to just flip a switch and turn off pedophilia in a lifetime of abusive tendencies. After Billy Joe was returned to the home, the problems didn't stop, and the system continued to fail her. Billy Ray Powell had been mandated to go to counseling, but he denied the abuse, and he blamed everything on Billy Joe. She was returned to the home to mom and dad, regardless of what seems obvious was her best interests. And part of the terms of her being released back to her family was that her family, the Powells, would return and appear for a follow-up court hearing. But guess what? None of them showed up. There was a documented response to the Powell's failure to appear. It said, Reasonable efforts have been made to reunite the family without success and parental rights should be terminated. But here's the thing. No parental rights were terminated. In fact, no court or Department of Human Services official ever attempted to contact Billy Ray or Charlotte or Billy Joe after they failed to appear in court. And despite the Powell's contempt against the court's orders, Billy Joe remained in this abusive household. And Lord knows what was happening night after night in that home. And we really don't know what Billy Joe was subjected to in the days that followed her return to her parents' house. The only night that we have clarity on is August 22nd of 1992. And that night, Billy Ray, he was on one and he began screaming at and berating Billy Joe. About what? We don't know, because even if we did, it doesn't matter. There's literally no reason that any adult man has any reason to scream verbally and abuse a 16-year-old girl ever. So the subject of this attack is honestly moot. 
Well, let's face it. This whole thing is extremely sad and disturbing because there's no question that Billy Joe suffered extreme duress while she was abused by her father in her formative years. We don't know how many times this happened. She was yelled at all night for absolutely no reason. We know for sure that it was frequent and it was brutal, but what we do know for sure is that tonight was different for one very important reason. And that reason is that 16-year-old Billy Joe was fucking done with it. So the verbal abuse from Billy Ray continued and they moved into the master bedroom and he was near his bed. So as he continued to say all these shitty things to her, she was tolerating it, but was really reaching a boiling point. And at one point, Billy Ray paused to reach for a pack of cigarettes. And at that point, Billy Joe lifted a single shot, 22 caliber rifle and pulled the trigger. She shot Billy Ray once in the back at very close range. Just like that, 47-year-old Billy Ray Powell was dead. When authorities reached the scene, they did not know what to expect. And weirdly, for some reason, it wasn't police who reached the scene first. It was the mayor of Cement, who was named Jerry Dallas. He was the first person to arrive at the Powell home. So here's why this is interesting. It's Jerry Dallas was Billy Ray Powell's boss. Billy Ray Powell had been working as the mayoral handyman for years by the time this death occurred. When Jerry Dallas arrived, he observed Billy Ray dead in his bedroom. and In the corner, he saw Billy Joe cowering. When police arrived and asked her, she told them she killed her father because she was, quote, tired of him being around and couldn't stand him any longer, unquote. The Powell house was searched, and in Billy Joe's room, there were things like stuffed bears, animal figurines, and a bookcase. Cowboy boots and sneakers were tucked beneath a desk, and her bed was unmade. A poster next to her bedroom door read, quote, a friend is someone who knows all about you and likes you anyway. So this whole setting is really ironic. You know, it's the room of a child who is embroiled in a very adult situation. So Billy Joe Powell was placed under arrest and led away from her front porch in handcuffs. And it was soon determined that she would be facing charges of murder in the first degree. She freely answered questions when she was interviewed. And when she discussed the abuse that her father inflicted onto the family, people were stunned, especially those like Jerry Dallas, remember the mayor of the town and the employer and longtime friend of Billy Ray. He was actually so close to the family that Billy Joe referred to him as Uncle Jerry. So it's at this point where we go back to where we started this story, where news of what had happened actually broke and started spreading throughout the school eventually reaching the ears of our first-degree Jess. On the heels of the shocking shooting death of Billy Ray Powell, the cement Oklahoma mayor's handyman, 16-year-old Billy Joe Powell was arrested and charged with first-degree premeditated murder of her father. The news started to move swiftly through the community. We had heard that Billy Joe was in jail and that she had killed her dad. I remember going to school and that I thought maybe it was just a rumor. It came out really, really, really fast as to why she did it. Soon after Billy Joe's arrest, whispers of the grim history of the abuse she had suffered at home began to spread through the town. 
And while the initial response to this news of Billy Ray's death was confusion and curiosity, it quickly transformed into outrage and into defense of the teenage Billy Joe. Publicly, it was becoming clear that the real victim in this situation was Billy Joe. The mayor and former boss of Billy Ray, Jerry Dallas, told the Daily Oklahoman, quote, Billy Ray was probably with me more than anyone else in town, and I never saw the side of him he exhibited at home. From this point forward, Mayor Jerry Dallas would lobby tirelessly in Billy Joe's defense. He became a harsh critic of the Department of Human Services, who he felt had absolutely failed Billy Joe. This case is obviously mind-blowing, so we asked Jess what the consensus was at her school. I think most of us, for the most part, figured there had to be a good reason for it. I think we all pretty much knew that she had had a crappy home life just from looking at her. She didn't talk about it. She never talked about her home life at school. So it wasn't even so much that we thought that she was like this cold-blooded killer. We were just like, wow, I wonder what her dad did to, to to make her do that. Oh, my God. The abuse Billy Joe experienced was prolonged. How is it that no one realized how dangerous of a situation she was in this entire time? Looking back on it, you could tell... It was painfully obvious that there were things going on at home, that she had either one or two parents who just did not give a shit, because you could tell that she wasn't very well taken care of. She looked neglected. At this point, the history of the sexual abuse Billy Joe and her siblings experienced was extremely public. Also made public was the fact that Billy Joe had been removed from the home due to the severity of the abuse, only to be returned shortly thereafter. And people were outraged when they learned the truth about the Powell house. And now what made it worse is that Billy Joe is facing this first degree premeditated murder charge. But the community remained on her side and people wore pink ribbons in solidarity with Billy Joe. And Jessica remembers all of this extremely well. There were pink ribbons all over town. There were pink ribbons all up and down, all up and down Main Street on like City Hall. People were wearing pink ribbons and like, I think somebody made up t-shirts that said like justice for Billy Joe or, or free Billy Joe. But here's the thing. Despite the fact that the court of public opinion was squarely in Billy Joe's favor, that support did little to alter the odds stacked against her within the judicial system. Remember, she's 16 years old and she was ordered remanded on $100,000 bail. And that was a cost that Billy Joe's family just couldn't afford. It was right around the time that the media reported on the fact that teenage Billy Joe would have to remain in jail, that the public also learned that she was going to be tried as an adult. And guess what? The public was outraged. Everybody wanted justice for Billy Joe, not for Billy Ray, because he was a piece of shit. They wanted justice for Billy Joe, and they, nobody thought that she deserved to be in jail at all. The story exploded regionally and eventually nationally. Letters in support of Billy Joe poured in from all corners of the country. Her legal team received inquiries from several national media outlets, including CNN, 2020, Hard Copy, A Current Affair, Time Magazine. Billy Joe Powell's name was spreading across the globe, yet the 16-year-old remained in jail in solitary confinement. The narrative of this strange case had completely shifted, and publicly there were few individuals, if any, who believed that Billy Joe should be punished for retaliating against her abuser. Honestly, I don't remember of anybody defending him. 
But I can tell you that most of her family and friends and the community, they all rallied behind her. Because down there, you know, we don't take kindly to sexual predators. They're in small towns. It's like, hang them up. She didn't deserve any justice. She needed to be defended, and the town needed to be there for her, and the authorities needed to be there for her because they weren't there for her before. And that was pretty much the, uh, the consensus of the whole town. The local court system had failed Billy Joe in the past, and apparently they were going to double down. Billy Joe was charged with first-degree murder. She pleaded not guilty at her arraignment, and she was slated to be tried in adult court. But even the prosecutor assigned to this case was recommending for Billy Joe to be tried in the juvenile system. However, according to Oklahoma law at the time, any minor between 15 and 17 that is charged with first-degree murder could be tried as an adult. It's up to the judge to make that decision. But here's the thing. This is literally a matter of life or death for Billy Joe because if she's found guilty in adult court, she could end up in prison for the rest of her life. However, if she's tried in juvenile court, the maximum sentence would have Billy Joe behind bars only until the age of 18. The judge ordered a hearing to decide whether the case would be heard in adult or juvenile court. Billy Joe's maternal grandmother testified that she often saw Billy Ray fondle Billy Joe and an older sister who had since left home. Billy Joe's sister Tracy also testified to the sexual, physical, and emotional abuse that she suffered at her father's hand, and she left the courtroom in tears. Billy Joe's brother John testified to the frequent beatings he suffered at the hands of his father, who would strike him with a wooden paddle. He also testified to seeing his father molest both of his sisters. John also testified that when he was 15, after a particular brutal beating he suffered from his father, John picked up a shotgun and threatened to kill his dad. Billy Ray then backed down and John moved out the next day. So this guy is such a fucking monster that Billy Joe wasn't even the first of his kids to raise a gun to him. Billy Joe testified during the hearing as well and told a troubling story of when she was six and her father had placed his hands between her legs and on her breasts. Billy Joe's mother and wife of Billy Ray was the only one to say that she loved the man who was shot and killed by their daughter. She said, quote, I loved him very much. There were bad times and good times. If Billy Ray had been treated right when he was growing up, none of this would have happened. <sighs> oh, it hurts. I mean, how could you feel anything but just total disgust for yeah, a man that, who would and, hurt your children in such a way? You know, to even justify justify love with this man, you know, say that you love this man after you know that he molested your children is so mentally disturbed to me. Like she's making excuses for his behavior and that's fucking, I think this is mental illness. Well, it it could also be mental illness. It could also be trauma in her background too. Of course, but just, there's no way that they're operating in any sort of normal capacity. Like this is dysfunction, not seeing dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And if you have any love for a man who molested your child, There's something wrong. And abused every one of your children. Yes. And you shouldn't be able to feel that feeling still, Mm -hmm. frankly. Like, that love should have dissipated the second you hurt, second you believed. Maybe I did love him, but not I love currently. Well, and then justifying uh, if he was treated better as a child, he would have been better. It's like, well, he wasn't better. And lots of people are abused and turn out to be fantastic people. That's the thing. It's like she's basically saying that the abuse is the excuse for his Mm -hmm. abuse, 
that he put on his children and, and kind of making it okay and excusing it in a sense. And it's just, it's so fucked yeah. up and infuriating. I mean, I can't imagine how her, her poor fucking kids feel having their mother say that and basically be on his side. There's nowhere for the kids to run. Well, no. and also Billy Joe told her mother that it was happening and she didn't yeah. believe her. And no doubt, right? She wanted to probably stay married to this fucker. Yeah, fuck that guy. So after the conclusion of the hearing, people were anxiously waiting to hear the judge's decision. And the support for Billy Joe was resounding. For example, a sign on the reception desk at City Hall promoted the Pink Ribbon campaign in support of Billy Joe. That's at City Hall. City Hall. Yeah. And there was also a petition with more than 3,000 signatures that had been collected and presented to the county district court asking that Billy Joe be certified as a juvenile. Remember, this is a small town. Well, the mayor's on our side. I bet you that's yeah. his sign at City Hall. So, yeah, seriously. Yeah. So this court system had failed Billy Joe so many times already. So I guess it's no surprise that it would continue to do so. Because even though the prosecutor was asking for Billy Joe to be tried in the juvenile system, and the public support was overwhelming in her favor, the legal system was not. And it would fail her again. Despite the disturbing testimony about the abuse suffered by the Powell children, the judge determined that Billy Joe's case would remain in adult court. The stiffness of this decision and the charges against Billy Joe incited truly a public outcry. While the public support Billy Joe was receiving couldn't save her from adult court, it was starting to make a difference. An anonymous man had actually put up the bail money that Billy Joe needed to get out of jail. Finally, because this anonymous, glorious stranger put up this money, Billy Joe could finally get out. And she was released to the teacher who had been working with her to help her keep her schoolwork up while she was behind bars. But by the time she was released, she had been behind bars for almost 90 days following this wholly traumatic incident, which is so psychologically and, and emotionally fucked up, frankly. Like, you can't keep children locked away like that after an event like this. But they did. She actually had a story on 2020. People around the country heard about it. And I don't remember anybody being like, oh, my God, she needs to fry for that. Because it's such a small town, we we just believed her and believed that she, she did the only thing that she could think of to get out of the situation that she was in. Evidently, the public outrage eventually did cause the judge to buckle. While Billy Joe would still be tried in adult court, the charges were amended. She was now facing first-degree manslaughter. And once the charges against the teen were downgraded, plans to offer a plea agreement were made. On February 23, 1993, the judge accepted a plea agreement with a list of terms, and here's some of them. Basically, this agreement would place the teen on probation for five years would compel her to continue receiving counseling. She would also have to periodically report to the court. Another contingency of the deal, Billy Joe was not, not under any circumstances to return to the home of her mother, Charlotte. Instead, custody was awarded to an aunt that lived in Texas. She would also not serve any jail time. She received time served for the three months she'd already spent in jail. If she followed all the terms of her deal, her record would be cleared in 1998. And I have to say, I value the court's decision to not let Billy Joe return to her mother. Because clearly, yeah. 
if on the stand during this hearing, the mother is still saying that she loves and supports the dad, Lord knows what kind of fucking deranged resentment she would have. Or what kind of abuse that her mom might be putting upon her. Right, yeah. but like, if if she loves him so much and Billy Joe killed him, well, she might f- be resentful of that. You know, like, yeah. mm-hmm. and clearly, I mean, Billy Joe expressed to her mother countless times that this was going on and her mother didn't believe it. So, toxic, good call. Probably only the good call in this. Finally. <laughs> yeah, the in this situation. Yeah. yeah. So, following the plea hearing, there was a press conference and Billy Joe addressed the media. She thanked her supporters and also had a message for children who may find themselves in a similar situation, one of physical and mental abuse at the hands of a relative. She said, quote, it's not the right way to go to commit a crime. So we have to ask, is this justice? Here's Jess again. Normally, I would say that vigilante justice isn't justified. You know, we should leave it to the authorities and leave it to the justice system. However... She was removed by CPS twice because of sexual abuse allegations against her father. And twice they returned her to him. Why? So how is it that this girl was failed by the system to such a degree that she was pushed over the edge? How did things go so terribly wrong? And how have things changed since, if at all? It's quite obvious the courts in the Oklahoma Department of Human Services failed to secure Billy Joe's protection. And when finally Billy Joe was rightfully removed from the home, there was no follow-through. Follow-through to make sure that family members complied with follow-up court visits or check-ins. We did some digging on this, and it seems both times Billy Joe was returned to her home, it was due to these weird technicalities. And according to the Daily Oklahoman, the first time Billy Joe was returned to the home, it was because the DA's office refused to file the appropriate paperwork. Billy Joe was removed from the home the second time, because she was suicidal. In foster care, her mental state got so much better that she was no longer suicidal. So that was a perfect excuse to return her to her home, which makes absolutely no sense because she was suicidal and that's why they took her out of the home. She goes to foster care, she gets better, and then they put her right back in the same place. It makes no fucking sense. No, and honestly, we hear so many cases. I feel for people who work in the CPS system. Yeah. I don't know what it's like, but we know there's a problem. Yeah. I'm not saying it's the CPS employee's fault. It could be a budgeting problem. It could be their superiors. I don't know. But we hear this about this issue too much. Yeah. This is not the only time that we've heard of a situation like this where people are put back in the hands of their abuser. Yeah. And CPS... Is one of the hardest jobs in the world. We know that. Of course, of course. But this is 1990, and we're hearing cases much more recently that even seem much more bleak as far as the resources CPS has. So I'm not condemning CPS workers. We appreciate you. Keep fighting the good fight. Whatever we can all do to get them more funding or get them whatever support they need to be able to keep a closer eye on some of these really dangerous families would be ideal. Yeah. After the publicity of Billy Joe's case, there was some forward progress, at least in terms of the mistreatment she received while being prosecuted for shooting her father. In 1994, a year after Billy Joe took the manslaughter plea agreement, the Youthful Offenders Act was put in place. The act added a new prosecutorial category. With the act, minors under the age of 18 can be tried as juveniles, as adults, or as a youthful offender. 
So a youthful offender is sort of like a middle ground between a juvenile and an adult. And in most cases, youthful offenders are given an adult sentence, but those change depending on how well the minor handles the rehabilitation process. For first-degree manslaughter, Billy Joe would have qualified as a youthful offender. So this bill kind of gives the prosecutors more choices when these nuanced cases come up. The case of Billy Joe Powell exposed the massive problems with the Oklahoma Department of Human Services and the court system, frankly, as a whole. Not only that, this was a huge news story at the time, and this case left a lasting impression, especially on people like our first-degree Jess. Looking back on it, in hindsight, it was so obvious that she was not happy, that she wasn't happy at all. And there were things going on at home, and I just wish, I really, really wish that she had opened up and talked about it because she does not talk about her, her home life with anybody at school. She was really nice to people, and she she seemed like she tried to be in a good mood, but you could tell that there was something wrong. It just makes me really sad to think about it. How much blame falls at the feet of the adults tasked with protecting Billy Joe outside her home? Like at her school, for instance. Jess couldn't have been the only one to suspect how bad Billy Joe's home life was. When the news about Billy Ray's sexual abuse came out, the school superintendent said, quote, We knew there was a family problem. A problem in the home, but I didn't know it was a father problem. So they clearly knew there were issues, but didn't follow up with the proper child protective departments. Jess has some thoughts about that too. There needs to be more mandatory reporting. Teachers, clergy, coaches, they need to be reporting these things. You know, if these kids are going and talking to their counselors about things that are happening at home, report that shit. It's bullshit. And it really pisses me off because you read the statistics about high school, college girls, you know, young girls who are abused by people they know. And it's just ridiculous. It's insane. And I think that what Billy Joe did was absolutely preventable. And I think that the system let her down. And if I'd been in her situation, I can't say that I wouldn't have done the same thing. So Billy Joe did eventually give interviews to the media. And here's an excerpt from one. He just started latching in on me, (laughs) like he always did. He just started griping at me that I wasn't doing anything right and everything like that. I remember getting it and grabbing a gun, and he'd reach back over to get something on the end table, and I pulled the trigger. And no, I don't have no remorse. After my case came out and everything, I went back to see him for a while, and they told me that they did know, they figured out it was happening. They didn't know what to do. In these last two episodes, we've discussed the two cases that exposed our first-degree Jess to the sad truths about the world and molded her views on what it means, essentially, to be a woman. It's a sobering reality, but women and girls aren't inherently safe. Heck, in the case of Billy Joe Powell, she wasn't even guaranteed safety in her own home, with her own family, or within the state systems designed to help kids like her. Last week, we discussed 17-year-old Tanya Rogers, who is three blocks from home when a monster took her life for no reason other than the fact that he wanted to take a life that night and she happened to be there. Both of these horrible events took place in towns with less than a thousand residents. That being said, I truly shudder to imagine what is certainly going on in my own hometown or even on my own block. Remember, we always say this, this could be you. Tanya and Billy Joe were 
like my first experiences, my first connections with the fact that sexual crimes are real and they're not something you just see in the movies and on TV. And at the time, I didn't realize how, how bad it was everywhere. But now that I'm a, I'm a sexual assault survivor myself, I realize it's kind of an epidemic. At the time, I was still young, so these, these aren't things that were just swimming around in my head all the time. But at the time, it was more scary than anything. It was, it was like, well, they happened within two years of each other. How is it that, that you know, within a 10-mile radius, these two murders happened? They're both involve sexual predators. And, and I know about both of them. It was scary for me personally. And it was like, I can't believe that these things happen. Well, huge thank you to Joss for being our first degree for the past two episodes. If you're out there and you feel inclined to tell us your story, you can email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group because we are ch- chalk chalking talking true crime we are as it's chatting and talking talking true crime all the time and stick around tomorrow because we have a full episode of killing time for you in the first degree feed and remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close but not that close i like that we both kind of did a voice i was into that um what's the date today Happy Devil's Food Chocolate Day, friends. Goodness. Bye. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring and creating original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, producing an additional writing by Taylor Rogers, and Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for this episode include The Sunday Oklahoman, The Associated Press, The Seattle Times, Tulsa World, and as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source.